Hello, everybody. How you doing? I hope all is well. This is Perry Rosopoulos, and welcome back to another episode of Shot of Philosophy. We're going to be sticking once again with our spiritual spring cleaning, our spring cleaning for the soul format. So I'm going to provide another spiritual pathology, another ailment of the soul for us to examine, think about. I'll try to offer some antidotes. Today, we're going to be working a little bit with the new rational therapy, the book we've already talked about by Dr. Elliot Cohen. It's a great read. And I think I thought of this. I'm not sure if this phrase is original or if the idea, the idea definitely is not original because we're going to use Cohen to explain it. That being said, what I'm going to refer to today is something I'm calling the Phoenix fallacy. So this is kind of a weird mythology reference that I don't know why this occurred to me, but I do think it's interesting. So the Phoenix, right, basically rises from the ashes, takes flight. It's like a, a bird that's on fire, right? And it sort of sim, uh, symbolizes this idea of rebirth, right? So I think in life, we've talked a little bit about this with Aristotle, right? The sun is new each day. This idea of philosophy as the art of living, right? We're constantly making ourselves or we're working to pursue our, you know, our more, our more virtuous selves, right? All this involves, to a large extent, I think, death and rebirth, right? We talk about memento mori. We keep death on our minds, right? It's supposed to help us and, you know, drive us to act and live and think and feel in more positive ways. All of that is in light of this idea that we know we're not here forever, right? So death and rebirth, I think, are very relevant topics for philosophy as the art of living, as we're hopefully practicing and understanding on this podcast and beyond, of course, too, right? So I'm not against this idea. I think the phoenix is very cool. It looks cool, right? It's like this bird, again, it's a bird on fire. It's rising from the ashes, implying like, you know, from catastrophe and from hardship, we can rise, we can move up and beyond, right? And become, again, this beautiful, powerful, majestic bird, right? Um, so it, there's a lot of goodness there, I think. And I think we should ultimately be striving for a healthy relationship to this idea that from catastrophe, we can be reborn. And even from victory, right? For just, you know, just for argument's sake, we could even argue, I think nicely, that we're constantly in this process, right? Of shedding parts of ourselves, getting rid of certain aspects of ourselves, and then growing in new ways as the Phoenix does, right? That being said, I do think there is a problem here, or there can be a problem here, right? There's a healthy way, as we said, to apply a lot of things, and there's also an unhealthy way or unhealthy ways and healthy ways to apply them or understand them. So the person, who, let's say, for example, faces tragedy or catastrophe or a problem, let's even use a smaller word, right? Faces a problem and is able to see it as an opportunity and is able to grow as a result as the phoenix does, right? From the ashes, let's say, of this failure, I'm able to rise up and become something powerful, become something or become someone, right? And be reborn in a positive way. All that is very good. Now, the fallacy or the Phoenix fallacy, as I'm calling it, is when we go from problem solvers to problem seekers. And I think that's a very significant and important point to raise, right? We should not always need ashes or failure or a problem or a catastrophe in order to feel fulfilled or like we're making, in quotes, progress. Because I think a part of the reason I put that in quotes is because the person who suffers from the, feel, the, the phoenix fallacy feels as if they always need a problem. So we could really think about Aristotle here, right? The person who is the phoenix in a healthy sense 
avoids excess. And that really is, I think, as simple, or let's say that's at least a simple way of understanding what I'm trying to convey here. If you excessively need to be the phoenix rising from the ashes, you will start making ashes where there aren't any. And you will not, to kind of uh, overuse the metaphor here, you will not even enjoy the flight up from the ashes. Because you're looking for, once again, some type of problem to solve, some type of failure to to rectify some type of person to prove wrong or some type of revenge to like, you're just your way of seeing becomes too fixated on this process of death and rebirth, which again, we could argue is ubiquitous. It's happening constantly. That's not an argument I want to make for this episode. I'm referring to individuals who are problem seekers because they take pride perhaps in this image they have of themselves as problem solvers too much. They cling to that image too much such that they always need a problem. And in in needing that or in so doing, they make problems where there aren't any. They get a sense of fulfillment out of being good problem solvers, so much so that they always need a problem to feel good about themselves. And I think this is something I struggle with, right? This is even, I think, to an extent why something like intermittent fasting works for me. I get hungry. I think one, hunger is a natural part of what it means to be a person, so we shouldn't avoid it, right? But I have to watch it a little bit because I like having, I know I like having something to struggle against. So the hunger becomes that interlocutor or becomes that person, or not person, I'm not personifying it, but it becomes this thing that I can grapple with, I can struggle against, and in so doing, I'm disciplined and it creates the sense of fulfillment. Now, overall, again, I eat, I think very healthy, right? Fruits, vegetables, whatever. Um, And the fasting, I think, is at this point a very healthy practice for me. But I'm aware of that feeling, that sense of fulfillment I get. And I have to always remind myself that at times in other aspects of my life, I will start looking for a problem because I feel good when I'm the rising phoenix. But in order for the phoenix to rise, it needs, once again, ashes. It needs failure. It needs something negative. We don't want to start needing that. And I think, and I'm going to get into Cohen in a second here, there are certain symptoms we might be able to see that will let us know if we are committing the Phoenix fallacy, right? The Phoenix fallacy, I think, happens primarily in the way we view the present a lot. I think that's sort of like, and this leads me to my first point, right? If you're someone who doesn't like getting good news, if you're someone who problematizes good news, Right, you won the lottery. Someone gives you, you know, you're at the door. Oh, you won the lottery. Here's the check, and like it's one of those huge checks. And like your first, second, or third thought, instead of oh, I want all this money, is where am I going to put this check? Right. If you're good at making lemons out of lemonade, that is a symptom of the Phoenix fallacy, I think. And of course, there could be other causes of that too. But ultimately, you're seeing a problem. You're seeing a challenge where there isn't any. And of course, it's good to challenge ourselves. I'm not saying that at all. That, I'm not saying that it's not good to challenge ourselves. What I'm saying is, do you make challenges or problems out of thin air? That will lead to a significantly less joyful existence. And that happens in the present, right? So maybe we could talk about lacking gratitude as a symptom. Another symptom I think of this or in this regard is, are you bad at finding the silver lining? 
Or do you think people who find the silver lining are naive? Or that they're being dishonest? Right? Okay, so it's not even simply do you only see problems? It's again, do you seek problems? The person who sees the silver lining has to seek that, especially in a tough situation. Right? That's a skill we can train. And now, of course, we're going to talk about another fallacy, I think probably next episode, that Cohen characterizes nicely, which is the other end of this extreme. Right, So if on one extreme, you have this person who's constantly committing the Phoenix fallacy, who never sees the silver lining, who creates problems and fights and challenges when they're unnecessary, and when they're dishonest, they're not actually there. But you just need to, again, feel fulfilled, and your primary way of feeling fulfilled is solving problems. When there isn't one, you make one. You seek it. The other end of the spectrum is what he refers to as the wishful thinker, which I'm not going to get too much into it, but it's a great uh, sort of opposite to this. But the wishful thinker is not the person who sees a silver lining. That's not the only aspect of that. To see a silver lining and to work to seek it is not naive. It's not a bad thing as long as it's true. Right. So let's get into a little bit more about, so that's a little bit about the present, right? In the moment of a good thing, you see it as bad or you go to the, the negative aspect of it first. And that, that's, that's important too, right? It's first. I'm not saying we don't engage with the ambivalence of things. I'm not saying we don't engage with the fact that a lot of things in life, I was going to say most even, we could say, even if they're really positive, there will be some negatives there, of course. Where you put your focus here, where you put your attention here is very important. And we could even for a moment work with the analogy even more, right? Fire is intense. The phoenix is on fire, Right? So the idea here is like where you put your attention is also very important. In a positive situation, do you focus too intensely on the negative? In a negative situation, do you focus too intensely on the negative, ignoring the silver lining? That's the Phoenix fallacy too. So let's talk for a second about the new rational therapy. And I think these are very cool ideas. So now we're going to get into discussions about the future, which I also think if you're the Phoenix person, you see the future as way more, let's say, I don't want to say way more anxiously because it's more than that. It's not just anxiety, right? Because again, the anxious person who's the phoenix creates this, let's say, uh, false sense of a dangerous or risky future or potentially negative or potentially problematic future. That's what an anxious person does, right? But what the phoenix person does, what the phoenix fallacy does, I believe, is that it starts off with anxiety. And then because you're the phoenix, you go, oh, I'll deal with that. I'm going to crush that. And you start thinking as a confident person would. But what you're missing, and that feels good, but what you're missing is that the first thing is still not accurate. Right? So by that, I'm not sure if I'm saying this well, because this is something I'm still working on myself, right? The anxious person, quote unquote, sees the future as potentially negative. And they see themselves, I think likely, or it's often the case that they see themselves as not dealing with that well, right? The In contrast to that, the Phoenix fallacy person is almost just as anxious. They'll tell themselves the first, they'll tell themselves the same first story. The future is dangerous, right? For example. But their second story, the one that is about themselves is not, I won't be able to deal with that. It's this confident thing. I'll thrive. Again, the Phoenix, I'll be reborn no matter what. 
The Phoenix person is also missing that the first story might be inaccurate. The first story might be wrong. Their perception of the future is still an anxious and again, potentially very untruthful understanding. So you're training yourself in being confident, but not in a healthy way, which once again is why this is so insidious or why it's so, let's say, subtle. Because what you're getting, right again, anxious person, A, future bad. B, I can't deal with it. Phoenix person, right? A, future bad. B, I can deal with it. That person feels good about that perception of the self. Back to the idea of, of the person who's a problem solver feeling good about that. So the Phoenix fallacy is this weird perpetuating thing or self-perpetuating thing because it's linked with something that is seemingly positive. So we have to be very careful about this. Right? Where do we get our confidence from? Is it from true things or is it from untrue things? Is it from healthy, helpful things or unhealthy, unhelpful things? So if you're practicing the Phoenix fallacy, right, what you also likely are doing with these predictive things with the future, right, talk about anxiety in this regard, are three things. This is what uh, Cohen has to offer. I think it's very interesting. Murphy's Law. This is the most famous one. If something can go wrong, then it will. Magnifying risks. If there's anything, or I'm sorry, if there's any chance of something going wrong, then it probably will. Insisting on the past. If anything has gone wrong in the past, then it must, as a matter of lawful necessity, continue to go wrong in the future. And there's nothing that could be done about it. Right? So these are the three laws that we predict negative potentials onto the future. So if you are the Phoenix person, if something can go wrong, then it will. And no matter what, I'll be good. And you ignore the fact that Murphy's Law is false. A lot of things that can go wrong do not go wrong. It's that simple. A lot of things that can go wrong go right. Because by that law, too, when you think about it, everything can go wrong. Crossing the street can go wrong. And Murphy's Law, I think, is easy to catch because it is so omnipresent. It is so, let's say... Um, ubiquitous in your life. The more subtle one is insisting, I think, I'm sorry, is magnifying risks. Because there's an if there. If there's a chance something can go wrong, then it probably will. So I mentioned this in the context of the Phoenix fallacy because the person who's actively committing the Phoenix fallacy and frequently and intensely will, I think, likely see using Murphy's Law, will likely see the future magnifying risks not only because they've habituated themselves to see those narratives, but because they've also started to get something, again, in quotes, good out of it. They see the future as unnecessarily daunting or as unnecessarily scary because of those three predictive fallacies, those three ways that we predict that are not true. And they see themselves thriving in this untrue world. And then that image of the self, I think, suffocates the need to say, well, what if things go right? That's a whole other part of the brain that this person, and I, I am this person at times, doesn't even access. I'll give you an example, and this will be how we close the episode, right? I'm working to finish my doctorate, and I just keep telling myself the story that it's going to be impossible to find a job that geographically makes sense. And I've convinced myself that that's a good narrative because that will encourage me to take the most action when it comes to finishing this thing and applying to jobs. And what I realize is, one, that's wrong because ultimately the only thing that takes, the only thing that 
matters is the action anyway. I don't need that type of motivation. Secondly, it's untrue because I don't know. Thirdly, if I actually think about it, at every institution that I've worked thus far, which has been three or four, right? And I say three or four because the fourth is where I go to school. There have been openings in my field over the past two to three years, literally multiple openings. So not only am I ignoring evidence, which is never a good idea, I'm convincing myself of this narrative. And then I add the Phoenix style. I'm like, well, no matter what, I'll figure something out. And I take that kind of confidence in quotes because it's false confidence. It's not based enough on evidence. And I allow that to convince myself that I should perpetuate this story. And I've recently started to realize that this story is a negative one. This story is not balanced. And I've started telling the new one of, you know what, there is a chance. I'm not going to say there's a great chance, but I'm going to say there's a pretty good chance that I will find a job that fits after I get my, my doctorate. And that's a more balanced thing, right? It's like the possible, it's like, again, the power of if, right? Embracing if is a more honest approach to the future than this Phoenix fallacy, than Murphy's law, right? Again, the Phoenix fallacy is kind of an addition to Murphy's law. And the problem is it might encourage us to not see the silver lining in things because we're obsessed with this idea of crash, burn, die, rebirth, as a source of confidence, as a source of maybe even, let's say, something to do that day. And it encourages us to ignore evidence and lead lives that ultimately will be less joyful. Because me telling myself there's not going to be anything doesn't make me joyful at all. And again, sometimes in a little bit, we need some pessimism to get us moving. We talk about wishful thinking, we'll cover that. But if you lean more on the side of, let's say, Murphy's Law, right, on the side of magnifying risks, and you can relate to this idea of the Phoenix fallacy, again, this person who needs to seek problems in order to feel fulfilled, that's what anxiety is, right? You're seeing problems in the future. They don't even exist yet, but you're seeing them. You're seeking them. You're making them real when, again, they're not real. They can't be. You don't live tomorrow yet. You live now. So I hope this is helpful, and I hope I articulated this clearly. Um, and a couple of quick exercises here if you're like, oh, I relate to this. Take a minute. What went right this week? Think about the last seven days. What went well? Which of those things were either unexpected, like you had no clue they were going to happen, or B, were things you were expecting would go wrong that didn't? I have a great example. Right now I'm using my computer. It was broken two days ago. I just let it chill, turned it off, let it charge. Now it's working again. I already have an appointment tomorrow, which I'm luckily going to cancel as long as it keeps working, to go to the Apple store to get it fixed. And I was assuming I'd have to buy a new one. Right? It's just not good thinking. I don't know if they'll be able to fix it or not. The Phoenix fallacy, again, is like you're constantly preparing for something negative, which we need that a little bit or enough, but too much of a, a good thing can be a bad thing. Now, today I would write, I'm grateful this computer is working. I was expecting it to be broken. I'd have to spend like you know hundreds of dollars or more on the laptop. Now it's not. So take a minute. This is a great self-writing. What went well this week? And try to include something that went well unexpectedly. So you had an expectation and your expectation was defied by what happened. There's a great quote from Seneca, and this is actually how we'll end the episode, right? Think about, he tells us, right? Think about how much of what is expected doesn't happen. And think about also how much of what is unexpected actually happens. I think you'll be surprised what you come to realize. Because when I, whenever I do that for myself and I take a week or a month even or whatever, I'm always surprised by that. So be the phoenix, but avoid the phoenix fallacy.
Hope this is helpful. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.